Well, let's continue our study, What Hath Jerusalem to Do with Athens, a history of soul care in the church and in the culture. This week, the glory that was Greece, the grandeur that was Rome, secular soul care in the ancient world, roughly 400 BC to AD 300. So Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, Seneca, Epictetus, these five names are colossal. And as I reflect on the import and the impact of these individuals, I can't help but think of a line from one of my favorite movies of all time. I wonder if perhaps you also have seen and enjoyed the Rob Reiner film, The Princess Bride. Well, you remember after the Dread Pirate Roberts, uh, Wesley uh, separates Inigo Montoya from his sword in that classic duel, and Inigo begs his opponent to kill me quickly. Remember that? But Wesley's response to Inigo is beautiful. He says, I would sooner destroy a stained glass window as an artist like yourself. However, since I can't have you following me either, and then he clubs him over the head with the butt of his sword, knocking him out. Well, as we launch out into this particular podcast episode, uh, this time beginning to survey secular soul care in the ancient world, you need to know something uh, that motivates my approach. Uh, Socrates, this episode, and then the next episode, Plato and Aristotle and Seneca and Epictetus. Uh, I respect these men. In, in many, many ways, I have come to admire them. I find their passion, their stories, their efforts to understand the care and the cure of the human soul moving and not a little awe-inspiring. Now, make no mistake, uh, by and large, I find their psychologies to be, well, empty, vain, void of any ultimate assistance in the task of soul care, especially when as compared against the fullness and the richness of Jesus Christ, the wonderful counselor. However, that does not mean that I don't want to seek to understand and appreciate and come to have compassion for these men. We don't have to agree on everything they say in order to learn from everything that they write. Now, I'm going to say that again. We do not have to agree with everything that they say in order to learn from everything that they write. Right? I mean, my attitude toward these titans of secular soul care in the ancient world is a lot like Wesley's toward Inigo. I would sooner destroy a stained glass window as a soul care physician of the stature of any of these men. However, since I can't have my family or my church or my community following them either, I do want to deliver a knockout blow of sorts with this series of podcast episodes. When Karl Barth was lecturing theology students on the thought of uh, Friedrich Schleiermacher, with whom he profoundly disagreed, he told his listeners by way of caution, quote, he who has never loved here may not hate here either. End quote. I agree. I agree. There is a notion afoot in the church today that uncompromising must mean unloving, or at least unlearned, or something like that. Not so. Not so. To be uncompromising is merely to be uncowardly, to be principled. And though these men cast shadows that have loomed for millennia, we ought not to be intimidated by them. We ought to understand them appreciate them, even come to sympathize with them and see in so many ways that we are very much like them. 
There's no temptation that's overtaken these guys. That's not common to us. And perhaps even we might even come in that way to offer correction and counsel to them. Let's begin with Socrates. Socrates was born in the year 469 BC. He lived to be 71 years old, dying in 399 BC. He wasn't the first thinker of his kind, but he was the most famous. Uh, before Socrates, in ancient Greece, there were names like Alcameon, Protagoras, Democritus, and Hippocrates. But Socrates is the first giant of secular soul care in the ancient world. And seeing as he wasn't alone in his interests and pursuits, we have to ask the question, how did this come to be? That is, what is the explanation for the explosion of life and thought in this part of the world at this particular time in human history? The famed atheistic philosopher Bertrand Russell stated, quote, in all history, nothing is so surprising or so difficult to account for as the sudden rise of the civilization of Greece, end quote. We forget that essentially, uh, well, our entire way of life here in the West, <laughs> including art, architecture, the study of history, mathematics, science, scholastic education in general, athletics, our democratic government, all of it has its origins in ancient Greece. So how did this culture manage to produce all this stuff? I mean, if it doesn't boggle your mind, you're not boggleable, okay? Now, Morton Hunt, who is a science writer and the author of The Story of Psychology, suggests a number of uh, potential contributing factors to this cultural revolution that took place in ancient Greece. Allow me to flag three of them. First, uh, Hunt says that Athenians living outdoors much of the time in constant conversation with one another induced questioning and thinking. Well, that, that makes sense to me. Uh, we know how this works in the Twin Cities. In fact, from, from mid to late April till about early October, right around this time of year right now, we go outside <laughs> and we stay outside. And you see neighbors that you didn't even frankly know were still alive. <laughs> Folks who are just, they're out watering their lawns, uh, boats are heading out to their slips, we're cleaning out the garages and gutters and flower beds, right? We actually talk to one another even in the midst of a worldwide pandemic or at the close of it here, we, we exchange ideas. And for about six months, we like the Athenians are, to use Morton Hunt's phrase, living outdoors much of the time in constant conversation with one another. <laughs> well, this induces questioning and thinking. It stands to reason. Now, the second possible contributing factor to the rise of culture, this kind of culture in, in ancient Greece, uh, Morton Hunt says, is that commerce and conquest brought the Athenians and other Greeks into contact with many other cultures, and it made them curious about the origin of human differences. Now, I, I buy that too. When you meet a Persian for the first time, like before killing him, you learn about him. And sometimes you find yourself influenced or at least stimulated by him. Finally, think about this. Hunt suggests uh, war is over. Peace has come. To the victors go the spoils of invention and so on. And then with this circumstance arose unprecedented leisure. Again, Hunt says it this way. When civilization had developed to the point where day-to-day -day survival did not take up every hour of the day, human beings, for the first 
time had leisure, leisure in which to theorize about their motives and thoughts and those of other people, end quote. Now that fits too. Now that by itself, no, but when you place outdoors time and face-to-face conversation and the rise of commerce due to conquest and the emergence of newfound downtime, yeah, that's, that's probably the cocktail. Now, I want to suggest one more cause, and then we'll talk about Socrates. I, re- remember Socrates? <laughs> well, well, that cause is simply this, that nature abhors a vacuum. Nature abhors a vacuum. It's, it's stunning when you stop to think that in the very space in time in which the prophetic sacred word of the living God of Israel fell silent, the intertestamental period, the secular world of the nations that neighbored round about Israel, they started talking. Now, this is not a theory that I've tested as if we could, but it is a theory that, at least in a sense, has tended to repeat itself. Though not inspired or revelatory in the same way, the extraordinarily mature and sophisticated soul care of the 17th century British and American Puritans eventually faded. And in its place came the Enlightenment thinkers. We'll, we'll talk about them weeks and weeks ahead of uh, down the road. And after a time, what we see is the emergence of a genuine revival in the churches with the First and Second Great Awakenings, and uh, with it, some outstanding work in the area of counseling and the care and cure of souls. But before long, that light begins to fade, and for more than a century, biblical counseling all but disappears from the Western world. Now, recalling that nature abhors a vacuum, just after the American Civil War, we begin to see the appearance of the modern psychological revolution. And there are reasons why, by the way, that the church went dormant in this period, but we'll deal with that in the weeks ahead. With the emergence of Wundt and James and Freud and those who follow clear up to the present day, there certainly has been a counter-revolution of sorts uh, with regard to the biblical counseling movement over the last generation, but it is it is tiny when measured against the big dog of secular psychology today. Okay, so enough on that. Uh, the point is, is that fifth century in the 5th century BC, the word of God falls silent. So not to be outdone, the world of God begins to clear its throat in the ancient world, and the most influential of these early voices is without a doubt Socrates. Remember Socrates? <laughs> well, let's get to him now. What we know of this man is really due to the labors of his students to preserve his life and thought for us. For Socrates himself left us nothing. Uh, Plato, who we'll learn about in the next episode, and uh, Xenophon, who we will not learn about, uh, were two of Socrates' pupils, and they were the ones who took down what we have of him. What is so enduring about this man's life was his method of teaching. We still refer to it today as the Socratic method. He called it dialectic, and as a counseling technique, it is incredibly useful. He didn't really lecture his pupils as much as relate to them and then lead them with questions. Socrates felt that the best way to teach truth was through the model of self-discovery. And this came about as he peppered his students with questions. You know, much of the Western education of this world has developed along these lines, and we find ourselves massively in debt to this man. In fact, the word education comes from the Latin meaning to lead out. 
to draw a person out. That's the idea of education. He actually referred to himself as a midwife of thought. That's a great phrase, isn't it? Socrates considered himself a midwife of thought. Parenthetically, I've thought for years of evangelism as just that task. We are midwives to the new birth. We don't impart new spiritual life to people. The Holy Spirit does that. But as we unfold the gospel, as we preach and teach and counsel Jesus Christ and call people to repentance and faith in him, we are seeking to do the work of midwifery. (laughs) When Christians evangelize, we are midwives to the miraculous work of regeneration, midwives to the new birth. Well, Socrates considered himself the midwife of thought. So he was a teacher, yes. He was a philosopher. And though the term was a solid 2,000 years from being coined, uh, Socrates was a psychologist. Now, not in the modern sense, but this man was interested. In fact, he wasn't simply interested. He was absolutely possessed with a passion to understand the soul. In a sense, he was doing psychology, soul wisdom. Though he was an out-and-out pagan, with, so far as I can tell, absolutely no interest in or acquaintance with the God of the Jews. Socrates cared. He deeply cared about the life of the soul. Listen to these unblushing words of Socrates. Quote, Oh, my friends, if the soul is immortal, what care should be taken of her? This will I do for old and young, for every man I meet, foreigner and citizen. It is God's bidding. You must understand that I have gone about doing one thing and one only, exhorting all of you, young and old, not to care for your bodies or for money above your souls and beyond their welfare. End quote. <laughs> okay. Who does he sound like? I don't know. Our Lord? <laughs> what does Jesus say in Mark 8, 37? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Now, I don't care who you are. When you relentlessly say things like this in public, seeking to influence people, people will notice. Jesus like Socrates, drew the suspicions of the governing authorities. Socrates and his incessant questioning of folks began to grate on people, especially government authorities. And he soon found himself in relatively hot water. So much so, in fact, that he was sentenced to death in the year 399 BC. And as you may know, he was forced to drink hemlock, which is poison, and he died. Well, you can kill an idealist, but you cannot kill his ideals. Ideas have consequences. And long before his sentencing and death, Socrates had discipled a number of men. Chief among them was an individual by the name of Plato. And we will consider him in the next episode. Grace and peace.